Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Gavin. At this point, the kids are dismissed to go uh, to the kids program or to find that other screen and access that kids program uh, online. Uh, if you are not going to the kids program, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 15. Uh, this is where uh, we're going to reflect on God's word this morning. Uh, as you turn there, uh, I've always been a firm believer uh, that where we choose to live uh, really does matter. Uh, I think there's an importance to place that influences and shapes us into who we are. And what I often tell people uh, that move to Baltimore is that uh, if you're new to Baltimore, you might feel a little disjointed in this city uh, for maybe a year, maybe even two years, but there's some threshold in this city that if you're here after two years, it starts to get into your blood and it starts to sort of influence you and shape you into who you are. Well, our passage this morning uh, talks about where we choose to live. Uh, it uses the word abiding in certain translations. Uh, in other translations, it might say uh, remain. But all those are a Greek, a variation of the Greek word meno, which means to dwell somewhere. But our passage isn't talking about a physical dwelling place, but a dwelling place of the heart. It asks us, where does your heart dwell? Where does it live? Uh, maybe a better way to think about that question might be this. Uh, where does your sense of identity as a person, uh, where does that come from? Or, or what is it about you that helps you to persevere or endure when the going gets really difficult? Where does your sense of purpose, where does your sense of meaning uh, come from? What is the source of life that you are tapping into? You see, we all live at some sort of address. We all need an address or a place, and that's because we're all searching for meaning. We're all searching for a dwelling place for our hearts. It's part of our DNA. We can't help but do that as human beings. So I want us to consider this morning is what is your source of life? Where does your heart abide? And will that dwelling place stand in the most difficult of times? That's what I think our scripture wants us to consider this morning. So I'm going to be reading from John chapter 15, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by himself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father, in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is God's word. Father, be with us as we reflect on the richness and the power of your word, Lord. I pray that they wouldn't just be empty words on a page, but that they would be exactly as you say they are, living and active, cutting deeply into our hearts and into our souls. So I pray that as we meditate on your word this morning, that you would change us as a result that we would grasp fully what you want us to see this morning from your word. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you'll know that we started this Lenten sermon series. And in this Lenten sermon series, we're looking at what is called the Upper Room Discourse, which is a passage in the Gospel of John that stretches from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17. And let me tell you just right now, we're not going to get to all of it. There's so much here uh, in this passage, but it is a rich section of Scripture because it is a conversation over the table that Jesus had with his disciples uh, just before everything went crazy. Just before his betrayal, just before his arrest, just before his crucifixion, he had a simple meal with his disciples, and this is what they spoke about at that simple meal. And so Jesus knew that these would be the enduring words that he wanted his closest friends to uh, reflect on as chaos was about to ensue all around them. And of course, chaos did ensue. And even our passage this morning, there is so much here, friends. There's like four sermons here, which made preparation for this a little difficult because there's so much richness to this section, and we won't get to all of it. But what I do want us to think about this morning as we look at this passage is what I simply call the chain of love that I think Jesus sets up in this beautiful section of Scripture. And so I want us to see the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for his friends, and then finally, his command to all of us to love one another. And so let's start by looking at the Father's love for the Son. And this is probably the most appropriate of starting places when it comes to this passage. And it really is something you see all throughout the Gospel of John, where this Gospel writer really stresses the intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son, and also God the Holy Spirit that we're gonna look at uh, at length the next time we get together um, next Sunday. And we saw a little bit of this last week. Uh, Last week we saw that God the Father and God the Son are inextricably linked 
to one another. And what that means is that you can see the heart of the Father in the Son and see the, the heart of the Son in the Father. In fact, Hebrews 1 reminds us that, that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God the Father. And so that means they're equal in glory, they're united in mission, and that you can never fully understand God the Father until you understand God the Son, and of course, vice versa. But I think what we see uniquely in this passage is that the foundation of this amazing relationship within God, the foundation of this relationship is love. Simply, it's love. If you fast forward to John chapter 17, and, and this is uh, at the very end of this upper room discourse, you see what's called the high priestly prayer, which is this incredibly unique passage of scripture where you get a window into the, the father and the son's relationship. You get to, to see a prayer from God the son to God the father. And there's a lot going on there, but I think the most presenting thing you see is, is that this prayer is dripping in love. Love is sort of on every sentence of this amazing prayer. Just listen to this verse. Father, this is prayed by God the Son, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you have loved me from before the foundation of the world. What a beautiful window into this relationship that we see in this prayer. And if we're struck by anything, we're struck by just how much the Father loves the Son and how much the Son loves the Father. And we see that, that love is sort of the foundational expression of this Godhead. We see that the three members of the Trinity all relate to one another within, within this perfection of love, and they are the fullest joy for each other within the Godhead. Now, I don't understand the mystery of all that, but it is amazingly beautiful to be able to get a sense of what this relationship is all about. It's a bit hard for us to understand, admittedly, because so much of our love, our earthly love, is flawed and imperfect, but what we see here is love in its perfection. And it was this love that caused Christ to accept the will of the Father, even if that meant that the Father's will was for the Son to die on a cross. We see that it was this love that helped Jesus endure that cross and even find joy in the midst of the suffering. And so if we think about this chain of love, it starts with God. It starts with uh, the love of God between the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. But that chain goes on, and what's so amazing about this love is that you and I can be involved in it. You and I can be involved in this love, and that's what we see here, that the son loves his friends. I think it's beautiful that, that Jesus uses this term for his disciples in this passage. He says, no longer are you my servants, you are my friends. And what's true of them can also be true of you and I. You and I can be friends of God. Now I have to tell you, 
whenever I read this passage of scripture, and I, I was tempted to just do this, uh, the most staggering verse in this passage, at least in my mind, is verse nine. And I thought about just preaching the sermon only on verse nine, because here's what it says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, abide in my love. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. The Father loves the Son, as we just saw, with a white hot intensity that has been around from the very foundation of the world. But what Jesus is saying here is that if you are his, if you are one of his friends, if you are one of Christ's own, he loves you with that same amount of intensity. Just think about that for a moment. How is that possible? How could God love you and I? How could he love me with such intensity? It's almost too incredible for us to even believe. And so we wonder, we scratch our heads, is there proof of this love? Is there proof of this intensity? And that's why Jesus says in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. The demonstration of Christ's love for you is found at the foot of the cross. It's found in his sacrifice for you and for me. I love what the Jesus Storybook Bible, that children's book that we read a lot in worship says, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. Instead, it was his love for you and for me. You see, I think the truth is you and I have a hard time believing just how much God loves us. And because of that, we don't often live as if God loves us. If we sort of get in touch with our visceral feelings, often we think that God just simply tolerates us. We think that or we worry that, that God is always on the verge of sort of exhausting his patience with us. We think that in many ways he's just perpetually exasperated with us or that he just loves us begrudgingly. But the question we have to ask ourselves, is that the feeling that God the Father has for God the Son? No, it isn't. And that's why verse nine is so powerful. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. See, I think understanding the gospel the truth of God uh, is no more or less profound uh, than that children's song that we sing that says, Jesus loves me, this I know, right? It's no more or less profound than that because the gospel is understanding God's love for you. It's understanding that you and I become adopted sons and daughters of God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's believing that the Holy Spirit has visited you and has breathed life into your deadness. And it means that you and I, we, have, we get to stop living like an orphan, if we're gonna use sonship language. We get to stop living like an orphan of God and instead we live like sons and daughters. You see, we never get past living out the truth that Jesus loves us. And I think that's why Jesus follows this amazing truth in verse nine with this command, abide in my love, abide in my love. Make my love 
the dwelling place of your heart. And Jesus uses this image of the branch as the branch needs to be connected to a vine in order to have life. So connect yourself into the love God has for you. Let that love be the source of your life and your meaning and your fulfillment. Only being found in the love of Christ can our hearts truly stand up to the storms that life presents to us. As I thought about that this week, I thought about uh, my own life, and, and if you're a married couple out there, um, I want you to think back to uh, your honeymoon. And I don't want to say this in a crass way, but think, about, think back to your honeymoon and think about all the joy that you felt uh, in that experience. Uh, of course, uh, honeymoons are fun, sometimes because of where you get to travel, but they're the most fun because you're really reveling in the love that you have for one another, and nothing else seems to matter in that moment. Some of you know that uh, we have a funny story surrounding uh, our honeymoon. The night in which my wife and I were married, uh, her parents came home to the house and they let the dog out in the backyard. And the dog went out to go to the bathroom in the backyard. But while in the backyard, the dog was sprayed by a skunk. And so after the wedding night, Becca's family had to wash the dog in tomato sauce and all that sort of stuff. But what they eventually did is they put the dog in the same room as our luggage for uh, our honeymoon. So the net effect of that is my wife and I go on a honeymoon with luggage that smells like skunk. And all the clothes inside smelled like skunk. And everywhere we went on the cruise ship, we probably smelled like a skunk. And the cabin reeked of skunk. But guess what? We didn't care. We didn't care at all. It didn't matter to us. It didn't steal any joy away, not even an ounce of it. Why? Because we were so overcome by love and joy that all those things just didn't matter. And that joy spilled into every aspect of our lives. So what do I think Jesus is saying here? I think Jesus is saying here, you are loved. And so therefore, every day should feel like a honeymoon. Every day, the love of God should spill, flow into your life and spill outward in joy wherever you go. We aren't dour. We aren't gloomy. We aren't overly serious on our honeymoon. We're elated. We're walking on clouds day in and day, and day out. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You are loved, so live in light of that love. I think that's why William Barclay says that a gloomy Christian is actually a contradiction in terms. I've always loved that. A gloomy Christian is a contradiction in terms. And so, Christian, know this. Know that you are loved with the white-hot intensity of God. And so abide in that love. Let that love flow into joy and forsake all other sources of life that are empty because God loves you. Set up, camp in that truth. Make that the dwelling place of your heart. So that's that second chain in this chain of love. But what we see finally is that there is an outlet to this love as well. And that is that Jesus calls his friends to love one another. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I 
have loved you. I think what Jesus is getting at is this, that the more we dwell within the love of Jesus, the more we will naturally love others. The more intimate our friendship with Jesus, one author says, the greater our love will be from one another. And so what does that mean? Well, what it means is that if you're having a really hard time loving someone in your life, we all have those moments where there's people in our lives that feel unlovely, we really have a hard time loving them for whatever reason, then the answer to that is to spend more time dwelling in the love God has for you. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind our hearts that we are sinful and beyond our ability to repair ourselves. We remind ourselves that we've rebelled against a holy God and we are deserving of wrath. And yet Jesus came in love to rescue us. He came to save us. We are no longer his enemies. We are now his friends, no longer orphans. We are now loved by God. And the more we dwell in that truth, the more it will change you, guaranteed. The more you dwell in the truth of God's love for you, the more it will change you. The more you live in this neighborhood, the more it will rewrite your hearts. Have you ever seen that marketing firm out there called Constant Contact? Maybe you get um, emails from them and if you scroll down to the very bottom, you say, oh, Constant Contact. This is a company that's out there uh, that is built on the premise that repeated contact with a brand or an image will over time wind up rewriting our hearts and our desires. I think what Jesus is saying here is that constant contact with him, constant contact with Jesus our Savior has the power to rewrite our hearts and it is expressed in the ways you and I love one another, even the most unlovely people that God places in our path. Again, Barclay says, contact with loveliness will make us lovely. And so, friends, abide in his love. Don't be mistaken in thinking that God's love is just like ours. I think we get in trouble a lot of times when we think that God's love is just like our love. John Calvin used to say that there's nothing that troubles our conscience more than when we think God is just like ourselves. We admit our love is imperfect, it is fickle, it is selfish, it is conditional so often, but friend, God's love for you is not like that. God's love for you is perfect, and so dwell in his love. Let it rewrite the patterns of your heart. Let it flow out of you in joy and in love to others. I don't know if you ever uh, read Viktor Frankl's book, um, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, I read it a couple summers ago. It's not an, a light summary read. I wouldn't recommend it for that, but it is a very profound book. Viktor Frankl was uh, a psychologist who studied the human heart, but he lived uh, during World War II and was placed in a concentration camp, but his mind was always going. And so even while he was in that concentration camp, he wondered, could a person's heart find meaning in the darkest of places? 
He wondered, within the context of the suffering of a concentration camp during the Holocaust, he wondered, could mankind find meaning even in the darkest of places? And his conclusion was this. He said, the truth is this, love is the highest goal to which man can aspire. He even said later that the salvation of man is through love and in love. Love is the only thing that can provide meaning for our hearts. And so, friends, the gospel reminds us only in Christ's love for you can salvation be found. And so, let your hearts abide. Let them remain. Let them dwell in the love that God has for you. Make that your neighborhood Make that your address. Let's pray.